Big game hunting takes skill, stealth, and quite a bit of luck. It also takes ongoing attention to environmental factors and for many native hunters, pressure on state and federal officials for adequate allowances for traditional hunting rights. This is the time of year for deer, moose, and elk hunting. Many native hunters also earn a living guiding for others. We'll hear from experienced hunters today about their methods and culture and what hunting policies and methods need more attention. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Get out the Native vote efforts continue in Alaska ahead of Election Day. A voting advocate with a nonpartisan group to mobilize Alaska Native and American Indian voters says ballots going to and from remote communities will likely travel on small planes. That's why Michelle Spark with Get Out the Native Vote has been working with the Alaska Air Carriers Association to raise awareness about what she calls precious cargo. Spark says it's important for pilots and airline agents to recognize the packaging for election materials so ballots don't get pushed aside for other air freight. Let's make sure all the players are engaged and involved and that we're all prepared to make sure that our villages and our Native communities can vote with ease. Spark works with people like Donna Folger of Tanana, a village in interior Alaska, to raise awareness of voting. Folger plans on cooking breakfast near the polling site as an incentive to get people to vote. They get to have a cup of coffee and pancakes, scrambled eggs, bacon or spam. In other areas, like in western Alaska, one group of tribes is offering other incentives. The United Tribes of Bristol Bay plans to distribute a total of $20,000 to communities with the highest turnout. The money will go to schools and cultural programs. The Navajo Times reports Navajo Nation Council Speaker Seth Damon resigned Friday during a special council session. This comes after a photo surfaced of him allegedly intoxicated during a recent trip to Las Vegas. The photo shows Damon slumped over at a casino. Damon calls the photo unauthorized and admitted to the council that he was intoxicated, saying he was on a family vacation to support Navajo athletes at a national rodeo event and was not on official Navajo business. He was in his second term as Speaker. The Navajo Times reports Damon is running unopposed for the seat in the November 8th election to serve a third term and is likely to be re-elected. He is reportedly going to rehab. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden has appointed Navajo Nation First Lady Fafilia Nez to serve as a board member for the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, it's in recognition of her broad support of indigenous communities. Nez is a longtime advocate for education, the arts, and the retention of Navajo language and culture. She was raised on Hopi partition land in Big Mountain, Arizona, in a traditional hogan. Nez holds an honorary 
doctorate in humane letters from Northern Arizona University and for 15 years has served on various boards, task forces, and commissions. According to the White House, as First Lady, she's been an advocate for restoring and strengthening homes and families. In a statement, Nez says she's humbled to join the Kennedy Center's Board of Trustees and that performing arts are essential to the well-being and health of all communities. Nez was among seven appointees made by President Biden last month. They include business people, philanthropists, government officials, and others. The board provides guidance for the organization that hosts upwards of 2,000 performances a year and is the home of the National Symphony Orchestra and the Washington National Opera. It's also a living memorial to President John F. Kennedy, who was instrumental in the center's creation. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You've probably seen those car ads, low price, low payments, but when you get to the dealer, there could be a catch. If a dealer isn't honest when it comes to its car ads, tell the Federal Trade Commission, the nation's consumer protection agency at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Support by the Federal Trade Commission. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Many Native people continue to hunt big game animals like moose, deer, caribou, and elk on their traditional lands. Hunting is important for both subsistence and persevering and preserving traditional cultural knowledge. At the same time, some Native hunters face barriers, such as one tribe in Oregon that is pushing for lifting some state restrictions on Native hunters. Today we're speaking with big game hunters about maintaining their traditions and what challenges they see with hunting this year. Are you a hunter? Is your tribe currently fighting any restrictions on hunting? We want to hear from some native hunters today about any challenges you've encountered this year. Join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Or you can also post a comment on our social media pages. Joining us first from the Grand Round Reservation is Bobby Mercier. He is a cultural advisor for the Confederated Tribes of Grand Round and an artist. He's also a member of the tribe. Bobby, welcome to Native America Calling. Hey. Bobby, it's great to have you on the show. Tell us, have you hunted any big game yet this year? Oh, yeah. We've been hunting for the tribe here for the last month and a half. So, yep, deer and elk. Deer and elk, is, is that mostly the type of game you hunt, or do you, do you hunt other types too? No, just, just deer and elk around here. Well, Bobby, for our listeners that might not be familiar with uh, the Grand Round Reservation, tell us a little bit more about your tribal lands. How big are they, and, and whereabouts do you hunt? 
Um, out here, it's, it's our reservation is kind of checkerboarded um, down in the – it's the little town of Grand Round, but it's checkerboarded as a reservation. And then most of our reservation property is up in the hills. Um, we are right in between Salem, Oregon, and Lincoln City. So we're about 30 miles west of Salem. And um, we just – we hunt out in the Trask unit. That's the only unit we're allowed to hunt in. And, um, yeah, so this small tra- unit. Very small unit. Yeah, so this Trask unit, you folks are unable to hunt on certain areas of your tribal lands because of a treaty. Please tell us, how significant are those restrictions? Yeah, so we were a terminated tribe uh, in 54, and um, when tribes started being restored, uh, we were one of the ones to go back to Congress and, and fight for our rights. And one of the things that happened when we were trying to negotiate for our rights was they had that consent decree, which some tribes know about, um, something I think a lot of tribes should know about, um, somebody that just felt the oppor- you know, their obligation to bring it to Congress and um, say that, hey, they shouldn't, you know, natives shouldn't be able to just hunt whenever they want, um, was one of the things that was put in front of us when we were trying to be restored. And we fought for several years to be restored. And finally, in 1983, uh, President Reagan signed a bill to restore us. But we still had a lot of negotiations to go back and forth. And one of the things that came up was that consent decree to sign away our hunting and fishing rights in order to have a chunk of land. And the pretty much the only thing that we had was our if families still did live on allotments we had that land we had a small plot of land that was our cemetery and that was the only land base that we had um and so the land that they offered us was almost 10,000 acres of forest land and um but it was also signing away our hunting and fishing rights and so our council signed away our rights for hunting and fishing so that we could have that that plot of land to start something for our people, mm-hmm. and so now we we hunt like just like the rest of the state around here. We get the the tribe gets tags, and we have to put in for them, and it's a draw. You know, computer brings your name up, then you get a tag, and you know you put in for a deer or or an elk tag, and whatever you get, you get. So. Okay, so and and these lands that you're able to hunt now that uh, that you draw for this is the Trask unit. Yes. Okay, and tell us a little bit more about the Trask unit. How big is it? And this is this is the land that's open for everybody to hunt, right? Not just natives. Yeah, the yeah the Trask unit's open for everybody. Um, and originally here, where our original reservation boundaries was when we were put here. Because most of our tribes come from west, all Western Oregon, all the way down to the California border into the Columbia, um, being brought here, and so uh, our reservation originally was about almost seventy thousand acres, and it went to both sides of our highway that runs right through our reservation here, and we're not allowed to hunt on our on the left side of the highway, only the right when it used to be part of our original reservation here. 
And the Trask unit is just open to so to everybody, and there's so many people that come out here um, because uh, the gate. There's not a lot of gates, and the gates that are here, um, they're, they're not very far apart. So you can just park and walk in and walk come out another gate. Um, and our, our reservation is open to the public, so tons of people come out here. So. Mm. So, Bobby, in retrospect now, and to review a number of years ago, your tribe, in order to secure this, this these 10,000 acres of, of forested tribal lands uh, that make up what we, we think of today as the, the Grand Round Reservation, uh, tribal leaders at the time gave up uh, hunting rights. And, and now looking back in retrospect, how do tribal members feel about that? Was that uh, a good decision in retrospect? Uh that's a touchy subject. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of families here that you know wish that we could have negotiated, but they're you know and they they said, well, you know, we can negotiate this for another ten, fifteen, twenty years, you know, and you guys aren't gonna have no land base. You're not gonna be able to start, you know, your reservation back up. And there were some council members that signed it and some that didn't, but there was just enough to sign it that signed away our rights and so um by doing that you know they in that consent decree it, it says in there you know that we'll never be able to bring that back to congress again and argue for it but mm -hmm. we have made small strides in getting back there so well tell us about that because there is a, is a push now to to ease those restrictions and and, and how's that coming along um, it's coming along all right, you know. Uh, I mean, even our fishing, like uh, fishing, is a really big thing for us. You know, we're big salmon people here too, and and um, I mean, we have to buy state tags to to go down to the river just to get fish, um, uh, which is pretty darn weird. And so, uh, one thing that we have been doing is we have our salmon ceremonies and we negotiated with ODF and W to um, say, Hey, listen, can we get fish? We have a waterfall, one of the biggest waterfalls um, besides Niagara Falls in the United States here. And that's where one of our old villages was. And we negotiated with them to at least like said, Hey, can we get 15 tags just to get fish so we can take care of our ceremonies? And, um, for about a hundred years, we haven't had a, a fish scaffold on the Willamette Falls, and we were able to negotiate with them to get those 15 tags just so we could go out there and dip net off the falls and get those fish for our ceremonies. Um, and one of the other things that we had done in the last, oh, six years, six, seven years is ceremonial hunting. So that when there's a funeral or ceremonies going on, that uh, if tribal members need meat for their ceremonies, that that our natural resources we could we could go up and hunt and fill our freezers. So we do get a few elk tags and a few deer tags and uh, bear tag to put meat in our freezer, so that if people need it, they can go do that. So that's one small step that we have taken to get some of those rights back but we still like right now we whoever's got a tag whoever's name got drawn a tag you know to hunt right now that's that's what they can do
Did you? Did not you everybody a, gets meat, though. Did you get a tag this year, Bobby? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I got a couple tags. I got a muzzle loader tag, and then one of the other things that we do is an elder puts in for a tag, and they need somebody to hunt for them. Then one of us can go and and we can go hunt for that elder. So I've got I got an elder's tag that I got to go fill or try to fill for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. How many people from the tribe go hunting usually each season? Not a lot. So our our membership we have about fifty six hundred members. So not too many, but there's uh, I mean there's maybe maybe fifteen hundred of us around here that that hunt. And um, I, I mean, even if a tribal member gets a tag and they live somewhere else, they have to come clear out here to come and hunt. And if, even if their tag is for, you know, two, three weeks, then, you know, they'll come, may, some of them only come out here for a weekend and hunt. And then there's a tag that just sits there because they can't, they don't stay out here to hunt or fill their tags. Now, is it so, mostly the muzzle loaders and, and the rifles? Does anybody bow hunt? Oh yeah, yeah. Our bow season is is pretty big. Starts in September. So interesting, interesting. We're talking now with Bobby Mercier, and he is a cultural advisor for the Confederated Tribes of Grand Round. He's also an artist, and he's telling us more about the hunting season this year in Oregon, where he lives. Folks, if you've got a question, if you've got a comment, if you're a hunter, we want to hear from you today. 1-800-996-2848. Tell us how hunting season is shaping up in your community. We'd really like to hear. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. We're back right after a break. As Veterans Day approaches, we'll take time to look at ways Native veterans are honored all over the country. One is the new National Native American Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. that is now being formally dedicated. We're talking Native veterans on the next Native America Calling. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking with hunters about this year's hunting season. Are you a hunter? If so, what challenges do you face with hunting big game animals like deer, moose, elk, caribou? Join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our next guest is joining us from Fairbanks, Alaska. Rico DeWild. He is a subsistence hunter and fisherman, and he was featured on the reality show Life Below Zero. He's Athabascan. Rico, welcome back to Native America Calling. Hi, thank you. 
It's great to have you on the show, Rico. And tell us, have you gone hunting recently? Um, yeah, we just uh, got done with the fall hunt, which is in September. So it's been a good month since I've been out, but it's a uh, freeze-up time right now. So not everybody's going out and, uh, during this time of the year. You know, it's kind of hunkered down for a little bit. Well, what's life like for you as a subsistence hunter now that you're uh, a reality star celebrity? You've been on uh, Life Below Zero. Your your lifestyle has been profiled along with your family there going out on hunts. Uh, do, do people come to the community looking for you now and, and wanting you as a guide to help them hunt? <laughs> no, not really. Uh, out in Hoosler, there's not much paparazzi going on out there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um it's pretty much the same for me it doesn't really get in my head like that because we all know each other out there so not everybody's uh you know you get used to it is all i could say and um uh no i try to i have people if i'm online or something like facebook messages or instagram a lot of people from all over the world will hit me up and ask me to take them hunting and <laughs> no i don't i don't do that it's not really my thing to uh, bring outside hunters in and um I'm not a sport hunting fan, so but I do take a lot of people out from the village. I mean that hasn't changed. That's been going on before I was on TV, and uh, um, you know I have a a nice boat and um, a lot of friends, and we like to get together. I'm not the only one that uh, might take friends and family out to go look around for uh, their moose in the fall time, and it's kind of like a camaraderie thing. You know, it's uh, basically traditional style of hunting where you gather together and you help if you have luck with a moose and uh someone else is not having luck then you try to help them out well rico earlier we heard bobby talk about uh drawing elder tags and hunting on behalf of elders who can't go out themselves do you do that as well yeah that's called a proxy hunt where i'm at in Hooslia. um basically elders that can't can't get moose for themselves and they need their freezers uh filled with meat for the winter we me and a few others might uh, uh, take their tag and then go look around for them and hopefully have luck for them. And uh, I do that a lot. And Hoosley, I might do maybe up to six tags for uh, different elders in the community. Rico, what's the most challenging type of game to hunt where you are in Alaska? I'd say wolves are the most challenging and also grizzly bears. The predators seem to be the most challenging. And just to describe, if you would, for our, our, our listeners here that aren't necessarily familiar with Alaska or, or hunting game like a grizzly bear, I mean, that just seems so incredibly dangerous and, and risky. Uh, just give us an overview. I mean, what's that like to go out there and, and, and go after a big, big piece of game like that? Well, um, for one, you could be lucky, you know, and you could be traveling the rivers and you catch one swimming across maybe, or uh, you you get up in the mountain areas where you can overlook an area and you see one eating berries, you might be able to get downwind of it and sneak up on it. But um, a lot of times uh, it'll happen in spring too when it's, they first come out of their dens and they're hunting for, uh, uh, they usually they'll come out of their dens and the, the big ones will go right to where they killed something last fall and they basically bury it. It's like a beaver house, you know, sticks and mud and stuff and they let it freeze in and then they stay out late. And then they'll go go into the mountains in the first big snowstorm. And uh, so they cover their tracks as they travel and they den up. And in springtime, they come out and they go to those spots. So that's one of the times we're able to hunt them is when they're uh, going for their going back to their food cache, you know, which is no, normally a moose where I'm at. And uh, 
Um, we try to thin out the grizzlies as much as possible, especially the big ones, because they kill a lot of moose calves and also just adult moose. Um, same with wolves. Uh, we really try to watch the area. It's like a 50-mile radius maybe around Husa that we really keep control of as far as predator control. helps us to have a lot of success with having a lot of game like moose and even caribou at times when they go through. Now, Rico, there in Alaska where you are, do you have to still go through uh, drawing for tags and things like that, like, like folks in the contiguous U.S., or do you have a lot more flexibility in terms of how and when you can hunt? Um, from what I was hearing uh, him speak before me, that uh, sounds tough. Um, we don't have it that restricted, especially around Huslia. You know, we'll, um, uh, we get permits, and we have a subsistence unit. It's locals only, whether you're native or white. If you have an address in Huslia, you can go and hunt in that subsistence unit. And then uh, people that want to travel in for sport hunting, they can't come into this. Like, basically 50 miles downriver, 50 miles upriver, Huslia, they got to they can go through it, but they can't hunt in that unit. Um, and uh, each tribal member or each resident of Huslia gets a permit that they can fill for moose hunting. And that's how it's been as far as I remember. And, um, yeah, a lot less restrictive. You're not doing a draw hunt for tags or anything like that. Now, is that permit just for one moose? Yes, one bull moose in the fall time. And uh, sometimes there's a cow permit or uh, antlerless moose hunt in the uh, winter for people that hadn't had success in the fall time. But uh, we've been lucky in Husa. We have a good density of moose. And it's not only, it's, I mean, I say luck is in uh, respect to the animals, but we do have a high density moose because we do a lot of bear denning, uh, grizzly hunts, and wolf snaring in the winter, which is what we're ramping up to do is start going for wolves. And when those predator numbers get high, uh, you see your moose population drop fast. So, um, yeah, we... We get one hunt in the fall, and that's when the moose are at their fattest. You know, the bull moose, they're, uh, they they get real fat starting in springtime. They start eating, and they get all their weight back. And by uh, late August, they're at their fattest point. And then uh, fall time, they're going to lose their fat. You know, late September, mid to late September, they're going to lose all their body fat again with the fall rut with the bull moose. So we try to get them before it gets too late in September. The hunt starts first of September and ends 25th, and usually we all have our meat real fat moose meat in the freezer. We put it away. We make dry meat and all that, and everybody's stocked up and ready for the winter after that. And if, like I said, if there's families, whether they're elders or not, if they're having trouble getting moose, a lot of us will, will a lot of us able people will get in, have them get in our boats and we'll take them out and show them the areas that we think something might be and help them. If they have, if we have luck and we help them get the meat out and carry it out and cut it up and put it in their freezer. So, there's a lot of uh, helping each other in the community in September. There in Huslia, are there a lot of hunters besides yourself? Yeah, there's a lot of hunters in Huslia. A lot of the men, uh, even a lot of the women go hunting. And, uh, um, uh, my uh, my lady that I'm with now, um, her sister wanted to get a moose this fall. So she was like one of the women I took out and helped her hunt with her daughter. And she got a moose and... Uh, then, you know, we took the guts out, let it tenderize overnight, and then it was late in the evening, and then we came back with her brothers, and we just had a good time and cut up the meat and just enjoyed ourselves and put the meat in the boat, brought it to the smokehouse, hung it up for her, and then her and her mom and her dad and them, they just started working on it, her sisters, and they you know, got a lot of dry meat made, and they also put meat in her freezer. And yeah, it's uh, it's good times. It's good family bonding in September. 
Rico, out there on your boat and, and with gas prices as high as they are, and I know out in the villages, gas prices can be really high. Is, is that making it difficult at all for some families to get out there and hunt this fall? Well, Huslia is uh, very, I'm very fortunate to be from Huslia, Alaska, because the tribe runs that gas station and they don't believe in trying to make a profit if people are going to starve. So they basically have the gas at about $6.50 a gallon out here. So we're blessed with that because there's some villages, there's a lot of villages out here, it's $10, even $15 a gallon. So. Mm. Yeah, I can just imagine that would be just so difficult to to cover gas cost and, and then as well as hunt at the same time. So uh, when did you start hunting, Rico? How old were you? I grew up a hundred miles up river from Hoosa in the woods. And that's how we ate. Um, if we didn't, if we didn't hunt or trap or fish, we weren't going to survive. So I can't really recall when it started. I mean, I was in the boat traveling with the family before I was even able to remember it. Like we were uh, hunting. So it's hard to, it's hard to remember when I first started hunting, but, uh, I remember I first shot my first moose when I was 15 years old, and uh, that was a big day for me. <laughs> I still remember it. Now, over the years, how has hunting changed? How has it evolved? And what kind of challenges uh, are you encountering now that you didn't used to see out there? I think today you see a lot more wolves and grizzly numbers, and that's caused the moose population to drop a lot. Um, but in the last few winters, I think I got like 29 wolves so the population had gone way down around Huslia and among other people that had luck too with wolves over the past few winters we knocked the wolf population down lots so last fall we've seen a good number of moose but um that's the problem I think today is uh the price of gasoline is affecting how economically possible it is to get out and run your trap lines and also the price of furs when you know they didn't really go down but they didn't go up along with inflation and gas prices so People can't make a living trapping like when I was young. So there's a lot more predators and lots more, a lot less herbivores out there, which is what we depend on for food is herbivores. And um, uh, even omnivores, you know, you have black bear that we like to eat, and uh, the grizzlies are, numbers are high in the grizzly hunt. Black bear, like right now, it's freeze up, and a lot of people are looking for bear dens to try to get their bear meat for the winter, and also grizzlies are walking around looking for bear dens. People don't really know that that grizzlies really knock down the population of black bears, which is one of our staple foods. And um, so that's the challenge right now is we get a lot less bear meat and bear fat, which we depend on to eat, make bear grease, and we eat it with our dry meat while we're traveling. So we have a lot less of that staple, along with a lot uh, no salmon fishing. You know that that really hurt us. And salmon, we make dry fish out of it, and we jar some of it too, and we carry it with us in the winter, and we travel around. So we have really solid travel food bear grease and to go with our dry meat moose dry meat and also uh we have uh bear meat at home that we cook and we don't have as much as that when i was growing up there was a lot more of that staple foods that we depended on when we travel around on the land rico what's driving the increase in the, in the wolves and the grizzlies i think you know you go back in time alaska like white people didn't hit Husa till like the 1900s and then it wasn't a huge influx of white folks. Um, natives were nomadic back then. We were different. I moved, like the Koyukon Indians, where I'm at, Koyukon River Tribe, uh, Koyukon Athabascans. We come together back in the day, they say, before. That's my listening to my late mom talking. So she said they would gather in, during Christmas and stuff. But for the most part, all these Indians separated into small bands and families throughout the land. And they interacted with the uh, predators a lot more back then. So. 
Um, even though we have better machines and better guns and stuff nowadays, we're not moving around on the land as much as we used to. And then when I was a kid, gas prices were a lot cheaper, and the fur prices were very good, so you could make a living. I remember my brother going out walking. He got some wolverine lynx, wolf. He came back. He walked to Usla 40 miles, and they were tougher back then, too, you know, my brother Lee. And <laughs> he, he brought his furs to Fairbanks, bought a snow machine, threw it on the plane, and came driving back to our camp where I grew up. And uh, with a brand new snow, and you can't do that today. People can't make a living trapping. So those wolves and grizzlies, they have a free run of the land now. So that's where, uh, you know, you talk about land back and uh, wild. You know, there's these terms where bringing back, bring it back to the wild and all that. Not land back, but there's a white thing where they call uh, returning the wild to its natural habitat. But they always leave out the Indians, you know, and the Indians <laughs> and the natives up here, the Inuits, we uh moved around with the animals and we helped balance the land a lot. We were stewards of the land, you know, where uh, uh, we didn't just live off the land, we lived with the land. And that's what we do a lot in Hoosley, I think. I'm very fortunate to be from there. Is, um, we, there's a there's a select few, as there's not as much as back when I was growing up, that we really look at the land when we're traveling around and check out the numbers of things. Like you see a lot of moose kills and the moose are acting skittish and all that. You know they're having trouble. You got to try to help them out because that's what, sustains our people for hundreds and hundreds of years is being able to work with the animals. Folks, we're speaking now with Rico DeWild, and he is up in, in the Fairbanks area of Alaska. Uh, he was on the reality show uh, Life Below Zero, and uh, his subsistence hunting lifestyle was profiled. And he's telling us all about some of the challenges and, and some of the, the recent happenings up there in Alaska during hunting season. If you want to ask a question of, of Rico or our other guest, Bobby Mercier, who is in Oregon, and he's telling us about uh, what hunting is like there amongst the Confederated Tribes of Grand Round, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Or if you're a hunter yourself and you just want to talk a little bit about how the hunting season is shaping up where you are in your part of the country, we'd sure love to hear you on our show. So what are you waiting for? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Let's go back to Rico. And, and Rico, we do a lot of shows about Alaska here at Native America Calling. We have a lot of guests from all over parts of Alaska, and we continue to hear about how the Alaska climate is changing. It's 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 the, the state is warming faster than any other state in the U.S. and lakes that once froze are, are no longer freezing, and, and the way it's impacting some of the the, the fish and, and other um, sea creatures is that having an impact at all in terms of uh, how you hunt there in Huslia in terms of just climate changing. Yeah, um, you know, Alaska is a huge state, so I could only really speak firsthand on my area, interior Alaska. Um, seems like the lakes have dried up a lot more. As far as, like, uh, fall hunting, I noticed I could walk around a lot easier because the lakes aren't full of water, but that makes it harder for uh, a lot of animals. Like, moose are very aquatic animals, so that maybe that's part of the reason the numbers seem to be dropping over the years is... Um, there's uh, just not as much aquatic, like uh, not as much lakes. They turn into basically grass grass fields is what you see, like huge meadows is what I'm seeing nowadays. That makes it a lot harder on fish too. And um, there's so many different aspects of cl climate change that are, that's affecting us. So I kind of got to look at it by season and how it affects me. And uh, fall time, you'll see a lot more meadows, a lot less moose. Uh, there's a lot less fish than there used to be. And that could be from salmon too, because the salmon would come up the streams and they would lay eggs and then grayling. And 
whitefish are crazy over those, and then the pike get to eat those fish that eat the eggs. So there's a domino effect on the fish when the uh, salmon can't lay their eggs in the summertime like they used to, and uh, it hurts all the animals. So that's part of whatever the climate change that's affecting the fish or maybe overfishing. And then um, muskrat numbers are real low because there's not as much uh, deep lakes out here in interior Alaska. So the muskrat are starting to disappear. Uh, beaver are more on the rivers now. The lake beavers, there isn't quite as many lake beaver. And um, the storms, too, from uh, seems like nowadays you see wicked storms, like wicked winds will come in and a lot of lightning happening. And uh, to me, it seems like there's more forest fires and it can get a lot hotter and drier and then we hit these big lightning storms so there's a lot more forest fires going on to me that's what i seem to notice and um also uh like um traveling in the winter i always carry rain gear with me now if i'm doing like a hundred mile trip or a 40 mile trip over land sometimes i do long trips three four five hundred mile trips from uh the, the fairbanks into the village and uh you got to carry a rain gear because it could Hit, you could hit rainstorms out there, and even in January, I've hit rainstorms traveling, and if that rain gets you wet, and then it's January, that temperature can hit 30 below by next day. We're talking with Rico DeWild. He's up in Alaska. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. This Native American Heritage Month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a health care professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. What concerns do you have with big game hunting? If you want to join the conversation, call us at 1-800-996-2848. That number, once again, 1-800-996-2848. We've got a caller on the line right now, James, listening in Spokane, Washington on KPBZ. James, you're on Native America Calling. Hello. Yes. Uh, Rico, it's a pleasure to speak to you. I follow you on the show, and I really enjoy all of your adventures out there and whatnot. I guess my question really was, is um, uh, you carry a 375. I assume that's a H&H 375. What brand is that gun? What is it a Mauser or something? Rico, feel free to respond to James's question about the rifle you hunt with. I have a 375 Ruger. I had an HH before, but it had a longer barrel, and I want the shorter barrel because if I'm going grizzly hunting in the spring, that barrel sticks out too far when I'm driving on my snow machine, and that grizzly might go into some thick stuff, and I don't want those trees and willows to hit my sight, and then I got to worry about if my gun is on when I get into the tight fishing with it. So that's why I got the shorter 375 Ruger 18-inch barrel. And, a uh, real big gun. I use it a lot. I carry it a lot when I'm moose hunting, too, because uh, I can shoot through the brush real well, and I'm in tough, brushy country, so I uh, usually close. And I I don't like to use scope because if something happens right away in the brush, I want to be able to shoot. I want to be able to line up those sights real quick and then get a shot off with a bullet that can bust through that willow as best as possible. James, any other questions for Rico? No, I, I just would say I appreciate all of your uh, your your wisdom and whatnot on the, on the substance hunting up there and how you guys do all that. And I think that's terrific. 
Well, James, thanks for calling in today. And uh, boy, Rico sure knows a lot about hunting. He knows a lot about the Alaskan wilderness. Let's go back to Bobby. And, and again, we have Bobby Mercier on the show. He's a cultural advisor for the Confederated Tribes of Grand Round. He's also an artist. And Bobby, you know, one thing we, we hear a lot about a lot uh, amongst uh, folks that hunt are animal rights people, activists and environmentalists. And um, are they creating challenges for folks like you, especially Native people that like to hunt? Well, and you know, like I said, everybody should look up that consent decree and see where that came from. That was from a person that was like that, and, you know, and that through challenges in, um, you know, tribal uh, reservations all across the country. Um, when that lady took it upon herself to do that, um, not out here. There's not really any activists out here. Um, you know, we're kind of, it's kind of nice. We're kind of out in the country and, and, uh, I don't know, people don't really come out here. I mean, locals come out here just, just to hunt or the local city people come out here to hunt, but it, it gets pretty packed. Interesting. And Bobby, what, uh, what types of rifles do you prefer to hunt with? Um, I got an Ot six. I, I use a Weatherby Ot six. That's I've had that thing since I was a young guy, and that's all I've ever hunted with. Do you use a scope? Yeah, on that one I do. Um, and then we we muzzle loader hunt too. So, what kind of muzzle loader do you use? Uh, it's a Traditions. That's the ones I use. Okay. We've got another caller on the line. Uh, this is Cortez listening on KBRW in Barrow, Alaska. Cortez, you're on Native America Calling. Hello. Hello, Cortez. What's on your mind? Um, I was just listening to the radio, and I was just trying to see where Rico was talking about. I was out uh, traveling, hunting up here at Pelvic and fishing. I can see how the changes with uh, the animals coming further up north. And uh, we, we, would, we would have to go uh, farther and farther to go caribou hunting. And as we were fishing, we seen uh, a wolverine coming up. And it's, you rarely ever see him come close to barrel. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Cortez, thank you for calling in. And Enrico, um, you know, Cortez comments there how, how it's changing and the Wolverines aren't going as as far north. And um, what do you see? I mean, earlier you talked extensively about how it's changing uh, some of these environmental factors. And where do you see the, the, the hunting season in, in 10, 20, or even 30 years? And, and when you think of your children and your grandchildren, what kind of conditions do you think they'll see? I think what he was saying, I'm pretty sure that he don't normally see Wolverine much that far north and around Utkiagvik Barrow. Um, I, from what I could tell is a lot of our animals are moving north, especially like the muskrat and the, well, the beaver. The beaver is moving north and starting to dam stuff up in places it never did. And that's the one that really changes the environment is the beaver. It uh, makes mm -hmm. dams, floods out an area, uh, creates a huge aquatic ecosystem which muskrat really like because grass are grown in those areas the water and also moose and uh, it, to me it seems like a lot of our our game are moving and maybe that's what he was talking about and uh what i see is uh 
what's coming maybe for us when I say the lakes are drying up, especially even when we get a lot of water, it goes to the ground easier because we're losing permafrost out here, and that's causing a lot of the lakes, like big, there'd be like big push-up humps on the starting to flatten out a lot, and that causes the caribou to not come around as much in the winter because they use that high banks along the lakes to knock snow off to get to their lichen down there. Not, they're not able to do that. There's not high banks around our lakes. And also our lakes are drying up and turning into big meadows. So maybe what's coming is deer and uh, maybe even bison and stuff like that that can eat those off of those big grass meadows. And those are very rich ground that's at the bottom of these lakes. Our first grass when you flying over like flying to the village, you see those three right up lakes that are now meadows they have just like a really bright green grass growing like a real rich grass growing in it so maybe these different animals will come in 30 years and my kids will be hunting something i never hunted so just thinking optimistically like that well maybe in that time there'll be more paparazzi up there where you're at as well rico you never know bobby let's ask you as well um how are how have conditions changed in your lifetime hunting there in, in western Oregon, and, and again, thinking about how uh, changing factors in the environment and, and other factors. Oh, there's a lot more people, I'll tell you that. Uh, yeah, a lot lot of people come out here. We'll see, we'll go up to up the reservation up in the canyon here, and there'll be three, four, five cars, trucks parked at a gate. And um, so it gets pretty crazy up there. But, you know, you were talking about climate change stuff. I mean, I don't know if it's the cause of it or what, but it seems like our, seems like all the animals were calving late and, uh, you know, deer and elk were still running around with velvet on their horns. And usually, usually by the time, you know, they get into the middle of bow season, most of those are, most of their velvets are all gone. And we've seen uh, just not even a few weeks ago, they're still, you know, deer and some elk running around with just brand new babies. So that's pretty crazy, but we're just now getting our first snow here. So. Yeah. Really interesting. Really interesting. What could yeah. be the cause of that? Really interesting. Uh, we got another caller on the line. This is Pablo listening on KOHN in Tahana Autumn. Pablo. Hello. Hey, how you doing chief? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Okay, okay. I was uh, doing something out here, and then uh, I heard of all these things that uh, out here where I live on the reservation between Phoenix and Tucson. Sure, and southern Arizona. Guess, yeah, way out here in the desert. Absolutely. Anyway, you... I just want to say, I just want to say before you close up, is uh, we got deer out here, uh, rams. And some uh, what they call uh, uh, antelopes. So you know they they do it and uh, to take it down quails, doves, rabbits, cottontails. Some of them, you know, they they take them down and they freeze them. But what I want to say is, uh, we uh, we dig a ground, dig a hole, and we put the meat in there, and then. Uh, We'd put the charcoal down the bottom, and then we'll build another fire on top. Man, it's something like that is good. Boy, it sounds like it. What we do? Sounds like it. Um, I want to like go ahead and let Bobby respond as as well. You know, talking about different ways to prepare game. And Bobby, do you have any favorite recipes for for game that you hunt? 
Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, our biggest thing around here, like I said, is fish for us. And so our smoked and our dried fish is really big, big for us. But um, I don't know. I don't know. I We just dry our meat or tons and tons of stew, you know, that we put our, our meat away and and um, kind of lasts us, lasts us all, all winter long here. So I don't know. We don't do anything too special with it. Salt just and pepper. That's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> Salt and pepper, cook it up. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I'll tell you for sure. Rico, you were talking earlier about hunting wolves and uh, wolf meat. Is that popular up there where you're at in uh, in Huslia? No, we don't eat wolf. Uh, just like wolverine, we don't eat wolverine. And we have uh, cultural, uh, like a ceremonial practices though, when we catch wolf. Um, after we skin it, we take the hide. You know, we only hunt them when their fur is prime in the coldest times of the winter. Then with that wolf carcass, we bring it a long ways out off the uh, trail somewhere. Uh, but we cut the, each joint, you know, like around the wrist, the elbows, the arms, the legs, the knees, uh, the ankle area, and then uh, the hip. We cut uh, all the major joints around the neck area. That way the animals, the scavengers come around, the foxes and stuff, and they pull it apart and they spread its bones out throughout the land. And our belief, that's the way the animal wants to be put away. He wants to be put back out on the land and... Uh, if we don't do that and we just kind of leave it anywhere and maybe later some kid or someone's walking around, they pick up that bone, that animal has something in it that can give you get you real sick. It's something like a spinal or some kind of parasite or something uh, get in your body and uh, make you crippled. Or maybe uh, the mother has a kid and it'll affect your kid. Um, we believe that animal ensures its uh, burial in the proper way by having that in its body. Okay. Thanks for that clarification there, Rico. And Bobby, I want to ask you, do you have a favorite hunting story? Um, yeah, I would say the, I don't know, biggest thing for me is watching my, watching my kids carry it on, you know, seeing them, seeing them hunt and get their first kills. That's, uh, that's something big for me. You know, that was something that I did with my dad and he did with his and, you know, I've been hunting since I could uh, stand up and hold on to the dash while my dad is going through the hills and then finally could keep up with my dad. That was kind of a big thing around here. My dad, uh, everybody swear he's part mountain goat, that guy. And, um, and uh, keeping up, you know, I think keeping up with him is one of the big things around here. Everybody would talk about, oh, I went hunting with your dad and man, he just took me miles and miles. We walked. And so, um, I don't know. I think biggest thing was my kids. Bobby, it sounds like you, like so many native people, we learned to hunt from our, our parents and our grandparents. And, and what about folks that, that don't have a, a strong hunting tradition in their families? Uh, how would you recommend they, they learn to hunt? Are there programs or any kind of outreach for folks that don't have the, the family members that can teach them this stuff? Um, around here, I mean, usually it's, Hey uncle, can I go hunting with you? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's usually the thing, you know, everybody's got an uncle or a cousin around here that, uh, they can jump in with. And there's a bunch of us, you know, a, a big thing for us was, uh, a lot of the people that stayed here after termination, there was a lot of families that stayed here and there was a lot of families that moved away. And so there's a lot that are moving back now because, of the available housing and stuff that we have here. 
and um, a lot that don't know how to hunt. They don't know the roads. They don't know the area at all. And so uh, it's usually a handful of us local guys that grew up here with our dads and uncles that are taking them out, you know, and I don't know. I think that's that's a big thing, especially, you know, for young ones that don't don't have a, the father or uncles to do that for them. So, Absolutely, absolutely. Rick, I want to get your thoughts as well. Uh, you know, all the people that watch you on television, I'm sure you've inspired a few people to take up hunting. Uh, what advice do you have for somebody that doesn't have a, a family member that can teach them? I'd say if you do it, don't go too far too soon. Take it easy, a little at a time, to, and you'll start to learn things and ask people questions. And just like when you're exploring in the woods, you got to explore human beings too. Some are going to be judicial, some are going to be real, <laughs> excuse my language. Um, so you'll start to figure out who to talk to, who to know, who knows the areas, and little at a time until you get better because you don't want to go too far or do something that trap yourself out there and get hurt. We got about a minute before we have to wrap up. Uh, do you have any special or, or just really, really cool stories uh, from from some of your hunting exploits that you want to share in about a minute? Um, yeah, I I do. Um, probably, uh, you know, I had scary moments out there where bears, you know, come try to take the moose from me at night. Situations like that, but I can't really tell a story on it in one minute. But uh, just uh, a lot of close encounters and stuff like that that happen. Sure, sure. I understand. Well, uh, definitely two very, very interesting uh, guests we've had on our show today telling us all about uh, what hunting means to them, uh, what they've experienced, some things they've seen, some of the cultural elements to hunting, as well as the challenges that they face in their communities with regard to hunting. So it's been a really, really intriguing, insightful show. Uh, we have now reached the end of our hour, so we're going to have to wrap up, unfortunately. But let's go ahead and thank both of our guests today, Bobby Mercier and Rico DeWild, for a thoughtful conversation on this year's hunting season. Join us again tomorrow on Native America Calling. We'll be talking about recognizing and honoring our Native veterans. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening to the one, the only Native America Calling. Ah, Enroll in healthcare coverage through CMS today and keep your health protected all year long. Contact your local Indian healthcare provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call one 800 318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Local tribal museums are the experts of indigenous histories, cultures, and values with the tools to educate the public. On the first National Tribal Museums Day on December 3rd, Participating museums will offer no-cost admission, special exhibits, and live cultural demonstrations. Learn more at indian-affairs.org slash Tribal Museums Day. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this program. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. 
Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.